It's Tuesday, June 12th, and this is The Daily Dive. It's the end of net neutrality, but maybe not forever. The FCC has rolled back rules on internet service providers that would prevent them from blocking content, throttling the speeds of data, and creating fast lanes for customers who paid premiums. As the internet continues to increase its importance in our lives, advocates are still fighting to keep the rules in place. We will speak to Axios Managing Editor Kim Hart to break down this repeal. Next, we will tell you a story about a child with a 107-degree fever who was airlifted to another hospital for better treatment and then got slapped with a bill for over $45,000. We will speak to Bloomberg reporter John Tazi about the air ambulance business and the massive bills they are charging patients. Finally, it has happened. President Trump and Kim Jong-un met face-to-face to hammer out a deal on denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. We'll speak to Elena Treen, reporter for Axios, about this historical moment and learn more about the personality and quirks of the North Korean leader. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Nothing about the internet was broken in 2015. Nothing about the law had changed. And there was not a rash of internet service providers blocking consumers from accessing the content, applications, or services of their choice. By taking these heavy-handed rules off the table, by establishing, once again, the bipartisan light-touch approach that we had for almost 20 years, we're going to see a lot more competition. Joining us now is Kim Hart, Axios Managing Editor. Thank you for joining us, Kim. The net neutrality repeal is official. Uh, It happened yesterday. All the rules have been taken away. Kim, briefly tell us what the idea of net neutrality is, and then what were the rules that were taken away? Net neutrality refers to the concept that internet service providers, the companies like Verizon, AT&T, and Comcast, should have to treat all traffic and content equally as it passes through their networks. So that means that it wouldn't be able to give preferential treatment to a Netflix show over a NBC show, for example. This comes back all the way to the early days of the internet when the startups of the internet, the Googles of the world, were concerned that the internet service providers could act as gateways to decide which traffic got sped up and which traffic got slowed down and could therefore interfere with the consumer's experience. And with all the new mergers between media companies and telecom companies, I mean, this thing gets very complicated. Like you said, the worry is, would they be speeding up their own products versus other people's? years ago when this debate really started in earnest in Washington, you had two very separate industries that relied on each other, but they were still pretty distinct. You had the telecom companies like the phone and internet companies that actually provided the pipes that take the internet service from a router and a server all the way to your home or your cell phone. And then you had the content companies like the Hollywood studios, the programmers, the cable channels, and then increasingly the uh, Silicon Valley companies as they're creating their own content. So really, it's the content companies needed to strike deals with the internet providers in order to make sure that their content was able to get to the consumers on their laptops, on their phones, on their smart TVs. But now you're seeing a lot more of these companies start to merge together so that a one company might uh, would probably own the pipes as well as the content. This is what you started to see with Comcast, NBC, Universal when those two companies merged back in 2011, and also what you're seen with AT&T's attempt to buy Time Warner. The decision for that actually comes out on Tuesday. So it's all kind of coming to a head right at the same time. So the rules were taken away. Uh, Internet service providers, they can't block content. They can't throttle customers anymore. 
and the paid prioritization, which was, you know, giving their own products more beneficial speeds there. But right. none of this stuff is going to be implemented right away. I mean, a lot of internet service providers have also pledged to not change anything in, in, recently. So what is, the exactly right. what is the big worry right now? Or wh how are people going to be impacted initially? Really, there is not going to be a big Y2K moment. It's not like a switch is going to be flipped and all of a sudden your internet service is going to slow down. You're not going to be able to get the same streaming shows that you're used to getting. Nothing will really change for the consumer's experience right now, the day after these rules go away. The big concern is that if these internet service providers are not bound by federal rules and they're not enforced by the Federal Communication Commission, then you know your internet service providers might try to in, enter into some interesting service arrangements with other companies or strike a deal so that a certain type of content over the internet, maybe one app works better on your cell phone than another app in exchange for a fee. The concern is that internet, that, um, that public interest groups and other public consumer advocates have raised is that it's going to be really hard for the average consumer to really be able to understand what's happening. If all of a sudden they have an app on their phone or a streaming online service or they're trying to watch a movie on, on their laptop. If suddenly that becomes really slow, it's hard to know, is that just because I have a bad connection or is that because an ISP has entered into some arrangement right. that I'm not sure about? So I think the concern is that not right away, because I think all the ISPs are going to be on their best behavior. They know the world is watching. And, but that as people start to pay less attention, that it's going to be really hard for consumers to know if there is some sort of funny business or deals happening behind the scenes. A lot of governors in, in a, a number of states have passed laws and rules saying that we're going to keep the same rules implemented already so things wouldn't change there. It would be a weird situation, a global internet kind of taking a different form from state to state now. What's happening on Capitol Hill? A few things are happening. Uh, the Democrats are really pushing to try to roll back the FCC's action that took place on Monday and in order to restore the net neutrality rules. This is under a small provision called the CRA in, on Capitol Hill. It's a, dis, it's a resolution of disapproval. So Congress can, if it acts in a certain process and in a certain time frame, overturn an FCC's decision. So the Senate already passed this measure. Now it goes to the House. Now the House has a pretty steep climb to get the number of votes that it needs. It needs a lot of Republicans to sign on to this measure in order to overturn what the FCC did on Monday. And a lot of people are doubtful that they're going to be able to pull it off. But the advocates are really trying to at least get some Republican lawmakers on record saying, I support net neutrality, because they think that that will help them in the, the future iteration of this fight as it continues. There's also some, there's been this long, years-long effort to try to come up with some sort of compromise between Republicans and Democrats to put in place some permanent net neutrality legislation so that the rules at the FCC level aren't victim to the political ping pong where they're changed depending on which party is in power and what kind of administration um, is in the White House. Yeah, it's just really interesting as the internet is such a huge part of our lives. A lot of people's eyes glaze over when they hear net neutrality, but it's an, a very important issue and, and really the future of how we use this service. Kim Hart, Axios Managing Editor, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.
the physicians at the local hospital decided that the child needed a higher level of care. They called for a helicopter to send him to a children's hospital in Charleston, West Virginia, I believe. After that, the family got a bill for 45000 some odd dollars. Their insurance plan, which was a state public employees plan, had agreed to pay about $6,700. Joining us now is John Tazi, reporter for Bloomberg. So this is a very interesting story. High medical bills are not unheard of, obviously, but this is pretty crazy. This has to do with air ambulances. So when an emergency happens and you need to be airlifted out of somewhere in a helicopter, taken to a hospital, there was a family who was hit with a $45,000 bill. What happened in this case? So this is a family who had a toddler, a three-year-old, who came down with a really high fever, went to their local hospital. It was in a small town in West Virginia. And the physicians at the local hospital decided that the child needed a higher level of care. He was burning up. They called for a helicopter to send him to a higher level of care at a children's hospital in Charleston, West Virginia, I believe. And he was treated there, stabilized, spent a few days in the hospital. After that, the family got a bill from the air ambulance provider, a company called Air Methods, for 45000 some odd dollars. Their insurance plan, which was a state public employees plan, had agreed to pay about $6,700, which they said was equivalent to what Medicare would pay for the same services. But the bill was much higher, and the company billed the family for the rest. So the total cost was like fifty two grand plus. It was more than that. There's a a concern that there could be some brain damage with a, such high fever. The the kid had a 107 degree mm. fever. So yes, you got to do these things in an emergency. But then you started looking into the big business of air ambulances and they've doubled in sizes. Their costs have doubled in size. And what they charge, like you said, for private insurances and Medicare and Medicaid, they don't cover those costs. And after that, it all goes back to the patient's. It's a really complicated area of healthcare. This industry has grown up a lot in the past 15 years, certainly. And going back to the 1980s, there were only a handful of helicopters, a few dozen across the country, mostly operated by hospitals. Now there are almost a thousand medical helicopters in the United States, uh, about 900 or so. Many are controlled by for-profit private companies. Now, that's not that different from hospitals, right? There are a lot of hospitals that are for-profit, privately owned. What's complicating factor in this part of the business is that they have to respond by law when there's an emergency. And patients aren't really in a position to shop for services, to compare prices. They're urgent medical situations. So a lot of resolving the billing and payment happens after the fact. In recent years, we've seen sort of a growth in this practice of balanced billing for patients with private insurance. If the insurance won't pay for it all, the provider will ask the patient to pay directly. Yeah, as you said, you don't really know what to expect in an emergency when you need the service. Even the air ambulance companies, they say 75% of the people that they fly a lot of times are poor patients, but they don't know exactly what it is. It's not till days right. later whether they know somebody can pay or not. And for the patient, you're in an emergency. You need help quickly. You're not necessarily concerned with the bill at that at that moment. Right. One thing it's important to note is that part of this business is reimbursed by Medicaid, which is insurance, basically a state insurance program for lower income people, which generally pays below cost, sometimes well below cost 
for these air ambulances. And a lot of it is also Medicare, uh, which pays a little bit more. That's for generally Americans over 65. But the industry says that that even Medicare rates don't fully reimburse for their costs of operating these helicopters at the scale they have them now. What services do they usually provide for? I mean, you think of an air being airlifted as somewhere it's something in a remote location or extreme emergency. So what they've expanded, though, to include other services. Yeah. So, and I mean, you may have an image in your mind of these mostly being picking people up off the side of the road after a motor vehicle accident. Actually, it turns out most of the transports are between hospitals. So they're taking people from maybe a smaller rural hospital to a place with a higher level of service technologies or experts that aren't available at the initial hospital where a patient is And they respond to traumas like car accidents, but also heart attacks, strokes, and other sort of time-urgent situations. Is there regulation coming or anything on the horizon to help patients who get these huge medical bills? Yeah, so that's an interesting question. I mean, one of the reasons that this piece of the healthcare industry, and to be clear, like balance billing is an issue in other areas of healthcare. It's not exclusive to air ambulances. But one of the reasons it seems to have turned up here a lot is because states actually have no legal authority to regulate the prices or the charges of these companies. And that's because under the federal law in the 1970s that deregulated the airline industry, that was the law that said, you know, the government's not going to set prices for Delta or United and, you know, that we're going to have a private airline industry for commercial flight. Well, these companies are counted under that law, preempts state regulation. So, you know, individual states have tried to, to limit how much, for example, a state workers' compensation plan pays for these services. And the courts have generally ruled that they don't have the authority to make those kinds of regulations. Now, there is an effort in Washington to roll back some of that exemption, but that, that you know, there's nothing, nothing kind of concrete in the law yet to do that. John Tazi, reporter for Bloomberg, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. There's this picture that shows he's this gluttonous man who was prone to fits of anger and was always kind of swaggering around with his classmates and also kind of demanded this loyalty from other children then. And that kind of foreshadowed the kind of leader he is today. Joining us now is Elena Treen, reporter for Axios. She's covering all of the North Korean summit news. Let's start off because of time difference and everything. We'll we'll join with you again tomorrow after all the dust settles and get a final breakdown of what happened at the summit. But what is the scene like there leading up to the summit, leading up to the actual meeting of President Trump and Kim Jong-un? It's still very unclear, and I think there's a lot of question marks in the air. The president and as well as administration both recognize this. Essentially, the president going into this is really excited that there's the potential of a deal. President Obama told President Trump during the transition process that basically North Korea would be his big moment. And he sees this as something that he could really own, whereas he originally thought it would be the peace deal in the Middle East. 
But now he's looking at North Korea as his one big defining moment of his presidency, at least these first four years. They um, are expecting and hoping that they will be able to reach some sort of deal. Of course, denuclearization of the North Korean peninsula is really what they're hoping for, but they've really dialed back expectations. They aren't saying that they think that'll happen. The president said last week during a press conference that he expects this would be the first of many meetings if it goes well. Of course, he also says, He'll walk out of the meeting if it doesn't go well. So it's unclear what will happen. All eyes are on that meeting. But for right. now, they're really being hopeful. And, and something of this magnitude is going to take multiple meetings, multiple engagements to really nail down exactly what's going to happen. Last week, there was talk of the attitude that President Trump was going into this. Sources have told Axios that it's kind of this thing of just get me in the room with the guy and I'll figure it out. And, and that's very true to President Trump's style. He's got to get there, assess the scene, and see if we can come to something, if we're going to come to some type of deal. It definitely speaks to President Trump's personality. He's someone who came from a businessman world. He's used to being the deal maker, And he really thinks that he's not going to know how to respond or to act until he's in the room with Kim Jong-un. And it is really interesting to watch. We've reported that you look at both of their personalities, very unpredictable, both leaders. And so I think that the president's really planning on kind of winging it in many senses, but he is still going to use that charm and personality that he had during his years as a businessman in real estate business to take a similar approach with Kim Jong-un. Yeah, you mentioned the personalities. Trump definitely thinks it's going to be a duel of personalities. He's been quizzing the Secretary of State about his meetings. But who is Kim Jong-un? They said that in school and such, he was prone to violence and a couple of other weird quirks. Well, my colleague Jonathan Swan actually was able to get bits and pieces from an intelligence profile that they've put together on Kim Jong-un. It goes through extensive interviews with teachers, students, others who have engaged with him, especially when he was at this elite school in Switzerland that he attended during his adolescence. And essentially, some of what the profile says is that there's this picture that shows he's this gluttonous man who was prone to fits of anger and was always kind of swaggering around with his classmates and also kind of demanded this loyalty from other children then. And that kind of foreshadowed the kind of leader he is today. He also was prone to violence and um, didn't really do so well in school, was distracted by other things and mentioned that he thought he was always going to be, be grow go on to become this great leader. And we're kind of seeing that play out now, um, essentially also, you know, seeing that he has been in this family where they've reigned for several years. So that is definitely something that the president and the administration have been reviewing in depth. And President Trump has also really shown this liking to going through the intelligence and psychological profiles that go along with Kim Jong-un ahead of this meeting. The other thing everybody's going to be really tuned into is we found out who President Trump's first big interview about the whole summit is going to be with. It's going to be with Sean Hannity later on tonight. Right. So um, my colleague Jonathan Swan and I scooped that. Actually, uh, we had heard that. Hannity was going to be the one who Trump had promised to give this first interview to. And it's not totally a surprise as Sean Hannity is one of President Trump's good friends and close confidants. But yeah, so he'll have that first sit down with President Trump 
um, and it's been confirmed by Fox News, and it won't air until 9 p.m. Eastern time on Tuesday. Um, but these two personalities we've seen, President Trump and Hannity, speak together. It should be very candid, more open. President Trump feels very candid and very comfortable with Hannity. So hopefully we'll get some a lot of color out of that interview. Again, exciting times. We'll join up with you again and uh, see what happens when all the dust settles. Elena Treen, reporter for Axios. She's covering all of the North Korean summit news. Thank you for, very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. We love the feedback, so don't forget to leave us a comment and give us a rating. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive.